You're listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. All right, well, I have a couple of things to tell you. One is that I have a, um, a particular affinity for the mill. I'm a, a product of the mill, although um, it, it was the mill disguised in its previous visage. Before being called the mill, it had a former life. Um, it was called the exchange, X-change. And, um, and so that gives you some clues as to its short-lived existence. Um, we call it the ill-fated exchange. Um, but, you know, back then it was a bunch of Generation Xers trying to change. And so it was really cool in like 1995 or something. But um, as an early 20-something, I was a single man working down at Fort Carson uh, in the Army and coming up to New Life and attending the exchange where um, my wife and I met. And I spent the next four years trying to persuade her to love me and marry me, which proved a, an arduous task that I'll let her tell you about sometime at another time because that's very much off the subject. But it was a valiant effort. Um, but because of that, this group, which, which evolved into the mill after my dear friend, Pastor Aaron, took over and God anointed him to grow this ministry and, and to, to rename it, among other things. Actually, I think there was a brief transitional uh, staff person who renamed it, and that was his contribution to the mill. And then Aaron took it and off to the races. And so here we are 10 years later, and the mill Sunday school, the nerd segment of the mill, is bigger than the exchange was by a lot. But this was very much the exchange vibe. We would kind of talk about deeper things and we would drink coffee and, and eat Walmart pastries and it was awesome. Okay, that's one thing I wanted to tell you. The other is that is what Joe already highlighted and that is that I have a deep regard for this particular segment of the mill because I'm a fellow nerd. Um, I, the honest truth is I am. I studied engineering in college and I've really never designed or built anything and, and so, um, but I put, you know, $100,000 of your parents' tax money to good use um, going to college. And so I felt like at least if I could, if I can take the, the mentality of, of nerdhood that you get in engineering school and for oh, come on, you know, it's true. <laughs> they, 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 engineering schools excel at breeding nerds. In fact, so much so that they called us, did they call you engineers? That's what they called us too. And, um... And so at least in my study of, of my day job, what I do now, pastoral ministry, I have um, seen fit to continue being a nerd and applying myself to the scriptures and understanding it. But I think that that pleases Jesus. I think he likes nerds because what we're trying to do is love God with our minds. And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that is the first and greatest commandment. And then another is like it, love your neighbor as yourself in Matthew 22, right? And so we know how to love God with our hearts. We're a generation with big hearts, and they, they naturally love and resonate with the love of God. We know how to love God with our soul, how to grow in our spiritual journey, with our strength, doing things with our lives to please God, serving people. But loving God with our minds is something that is a lost art, I believe, and to see a remnant in our generation, a segment of the mill's best and brightest, taking their Sunday morning and willingly going to a sort of mill 201, if I understand correctly, where you dig a little deeper and you apply a little more and you take the big idea truths that you learn on Friday nights and on Sunday mornings and you seek to 
bring them home to your life now so that for years to come, you don't just have to skim across the surface, but you can go deep and bring people to greater places of truth. I love that. I love what you're doing here. And so I am pleased and excited to jump in with you. Okay, the series is Heaven and Hell, basically everything that happens after you die. That's the domain of this series, as I understand it. Last week, I know that Noel brought the heat on living heaven-minded, living in this life, mindful that there is another and more salient, more meaningful existence to come. So continuing in the timeline of eternity, today we're going to turn our attention to death and dying, a theology, if you will, of death and dying. What happens, the mechanics and the spiritual nuances of the transition from this life to the next before we get to the resurrected body, the judgment seat of Christ, and then our eternal sentenced to hell or to heaven. Hopefully for all of us, it is indeed heaven. The concept of the afterlife is one that's deeply established, not only in Western thought, but uh, in the history of civilization. As long as there is recorded history, as far back as man's, mankind's civilizations can be traced, people have thought and have been preoccupied with the afterlife, which, with what comes next. And in our generation, you tend to find yourself believing that it's a 50-50. You know, half the people out there roughly now and through history have believed that there's something after death, and roughly half the people believe that there was nothing after death. That's what the secular atheist agenda in our generation has led many to believe tacitly, though maybe no one said it just that way. And I think the reason we believe that is because there's such a strong well-organized, well-financed agenda to communicate that now. But throughout history, it's just not true. The history of the world is a history of mankind seeking truth. And of all truth, the truth that has most consistently preoccupied mankind is the truth of eternity. What lies beyond? I taught a series several years ago at New Life Church called Answers from the Great Beyond, drawing on the, the REM song. And... Um, if any of you are familiar with that, with that song, yeah, I mean, I, you can't copyright a title I learned, so I shamelessly stole the title. And, and the subtitle for that series was Straight Talk on the Afterlife. And I believe straight talk on the afterlife is what people throughout history have hungered for. And I don't just say that because I want it to be true. If you look back through primary sources, and I won't bore you by reading passages of things like the Aeneid, although I know some of you have studied Virgil in your college classes, or look back on some of the translated ancient Egyptian texts and, and hieroglyphs that were found inside their burial plots, like the, the temple, the, um, what are those big pointy things? Pyramids and, and, <laughs> and other things. Every civilization had a theology or at least grasped for a theology of what happens after we die, what happens in the great beyond. And so straight talk on the afterlife is what mankind, among its most foundational desires, what mankind seeks. That's what we're doing today. And that's what we're doing in this series. And I applaud you for it. It's important. And I, it's important on several levels. It's important because it's one of the grand aims and purposes of mankind to understand, to know why. Why is the subject, the question, the discussion level that distinguishes mankind from every other species that we know to ever have existed. The ability to ask why and to reason through things. It's why you all go to, go to college. Many of you have, many of you will, or are studying your way through, or working your way through, whatever. But it's why we go to school, to be able to take facts that we observe, to be able to take realities that we experience and integrate them into a life ideology informed by God, which is what we call theology. And an ideology about and informed by God is just theology. 
That's all it means. And we weave this set of ideas together into a worldview, a framework that transcends belief because it relies on what we experience and what we know to be true and helps to fill in the gaps of understanding. Why is the big question? So our particular tack on the question of why this morning is what happens after we die. And it, in order to discuss that subject intelligently, and I am going to discuss this on sort of a 201 level, if that's okay. And what I want to do is have a discussion indeed. So I'm going to leave time for us at the end for Q&A. But if I say something that, that misses you or that I say it too fast or whatever, feel free to jump in and, and ask me to clarify or, or dialogue through the, through the course of the discussion as well. It seems like we have to begin this discussion by asking the question of what is death? It's something that we presuppose an understanding of because most all of us by this stage of life have experienced the death of someone somewhat close to us or at least a pet or something. <coughs> Excuse me. But to take death at face value is necessarily incomplete because what we see is only a portion of what happens at death. And so we have to ask the question, what is death? Let's plunge in on that question. But as a, a way of approaching it, I would suggest that many, too many, in our generation and even in our generation in the church fear death and they fear death needlessly. There are things that we are to fear and there are things that are fearful and fearsome and we need to learn to conquer our fear of, to master, to look in the eye with faith and in the power of the Lord Jesus. Death isn't one of those things. Death isn't something we just have to choose not to fear. Death is something that we fear because of lack of understanding. Truly, we don't know what we know when it comes to death. And when we know what we know, what's been revealed, what there is to know out there, death all of a sudden takes on a different complexion. Okay, so the nature of death. Here we go. Quick outline on the nature of death. This is in your notes. If you'd like to follow along and take notes, feel free. First idea I want to highlight, Scripture, the Bible, speaks of not one but two different deaths, two different types of death, both of which are together referred to by the word that we use as death. But um, scripture separates them out, so let's do that. You may have heard theologian Joe teach you about two different theologies or two different theories among those who study the scriptures and try to understand the things of God about the complexion and composition of a human being. Basically, the two prevalent theories are the dichotomy and trichotomy theory. The dichotomy theory, as the name would suggest, basically holds that there are two components to a human being. There is body and soul. And according to that theology, the soul is one's emotions, one's intellect, and one's spiritual entity, the inner being, if you will. And then the, the body is one's outer being or temporal existence here on the earth. And that is viable and quite possibly true. Another, and not necessarily competing, maybe just different shade of understanding, would be the trichotomy theory, which, as that name suggests, holds that there's three components to our being. Are you following me? So the trichotomy theology would say that we are not two, but three parts to our being. Anyone know what those three parts would be? One's body, soul, and spirit. Exactly. So the trichotomy theory basically just separates out your mind, will, and emotions, your capacity for reason and intellect, that's, that's mind or intellect, your emotions, that's basically your capacity, your faculty for feeling, and then will, the ability to choose and make one decision or another, one path or another. That's one function together as the soul, the spirit being that which is, is 
at its core regenerated by the Holy Spirit and which precipitates spiritual transformation being a separate entity. However you look at it, the two deaths that the scriptures speak of um, inherently, whether you look at the dichotomy or the trichotomy uh, theology as the lens through which you approach death, they, they both speak to the separation of one's inner being, soul spirit, and one's outer being into two separate processes. Okay, the first is physical death. That doesn't need too much discussion. We all know what that looks like. It's the cessation of life in our physical bodies. It's when our heart stops beating and our lungs stop breathing. Our bodies are called dead. And indeed, we've experienced that. It's the separation, though, of your body from your soul or your body from your soul and your spirit that's referred to as physical death. Okay, Matthew 10, 28 says, don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. All right, there's the two deaths. Everything I tell you and everything anyone tells you to be true about God and the scriptures, ask him to prove it to you in scripture. Now, there are going to be times as an aside that doctrines of scripture, when we're talking on the 201 and 301 level, we're talking about doctrines, there are going to be times where they're absolute. Have you heard Pastor Aaron teach about the absolutes, interpretations and deductions, the big bullseye target? Well, there are going to be times where we're talking about absolutes and I'm going to say, look, you may not like this or may not feel like it's true, but if you believe Orthodox Christian Christianity, it's true. Then there are those that are doctrines that are held to be true. A majority of scholars perhaps believe them to be true. Some do and some look at it a different, different way. And I'll try to distinguish among those, like the dichotomy and trichotomy theologies. Okay, back to the topic. Jesus says, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. By the way, this is the passage where um, the dichotomy theology comes from. There's the body and the soul. Jesus stakes those out as the two different types of death. And so people understandably lump those to lump the, all the different faculties together under those two. Okay, rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The best uh, modern illustration of this that drives it home for me is Obi-Wan and Darth Vader on the bridge of the Death Star right at the end of the original Star Wars. Do you remember the scene? Takes one more drink before I can do this at this time of the morning. All right, I, I feel like all of a sudden I'm so old to be doing this. I used to do this with high school kids all the time. <laughs> like Jake Kelly, you remember me doing this at, at 7.30 in the morning trying to keep you guys awake? <laughs> Doth, if you, <laughs> if you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. <laughs> Once I was the pupil, now I am the master. Only a master of evil, Doth. <laughs> remember that scene? What he's saying is... What he's saying is is you can kill my body, but if you kill my body, that which is more intrinsically me is going to become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. In other words, I'm going to multiply and increase. I'm going to kind of Agent Smith myself and get super powerful. You know how Agent Smith became like a million Agent Smiths by the end? Okay, so how does he do that? He can't, he, I mean, who knew that what he meant was like, was coming to Luke. And don't you think it was a bummer that at the beginning of the next movie, Luke's hanging upside down. Um, oh no, he, he's hanging upside down and he, he gets the lightsaber and gets himself out of the ice beast cave. And then rather than staying in the cave with, with the warm dead ice beast, he runs out into the snow and falls over and he's like freezing to death. And Obi-Wan comes to him and he's like, Luke, go to the Dagobah system. And Luke's like, great. 
How about a blanket? <laughs> if you're going to be more powerful than Darth Vader can possibly imagine, like, hook me up now. But anyway, I mean, I always just wonder about it. I'm like, thanks, Dagobah. Can't feel my hands right now. <laughs> but anyway, that whole thing, that, that's exactly, not quite exactly, but somewhat like what's happening here. The second death is the spiritual death. Spiritual death is a little more subtle, a little less readily understandable because it's not visible. We can't see that death with our eyes. And we've all watched, uh, at least on TV, somebody breathe their last and die. If you've never watched someone die in person, it's a really shocking and moving thing. There's a song in, uh, I mean, a lyric in a Death Cab song that says, uh, love is watching someone die. You guys know that song? And I I I heard that and I was like, ooh, that's morbid. And then I thought about it and I thought, man, I sat with with, uh, Rachel as she died and I felt such a transcendent sense of of the father's love for her and I, I held her hand and prayed for her and we had a little church service for a couple hours as the life um left her body and she went to be with jesus and it was the most poignant um vivid demonstration of this truth to see physical death happen and to know that at the moment of one's earthly body's last gasp its last Whole, uh, uh, grasp for existence. One spiritual being is just coming into its own. The spiritual death that Scripture teaches is an entirely separate death, and a death that not all experience ultimately. Okay, where is that in Scripture? Oh, first let me tell you what I understand it to be, and then I'll defend it in Scripture. It, the spiritual death is simply the inability to respond to spirituality. The inability, the deadening of one's spiritual sensitivity. The inability to respond to spiritual matters, knowing that God is the source of spiritual life. Spiritual death, then, is the separation from the person and God. Separation of the person from God. Okay, Ephesians 2, and verse 1 says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Every one of us came out of a condition of spiritual death into which we were born. Here's the mystery of it. When we were born, we were born alive in the body and dead in the spirit. It's what the Bible teaches. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, you have to get to God, you have to be born again. Now, and Nicodemus, sort of silly, but he says, how is a man to go back into his mother's womb? And he says, no, you need to be born of water. Yes, that's the birth process, but also born of the spirit because man, because of the curse, which we'll talk about in a second, was born spiritually dead. And then we get born again. We get brought to spiritual life. This, the process of spiritual death happens to people as soon as they come to life in the body. And then we come to life in our spirit to match the life in our body. And now we are both as born again, Bible believing, Jesus following Christians. We're both physically alive and spiritually alive. The second death then, as the scriptures call it, is basically that state, that spiritual death state, which we experience for a time on earth becoming permanent. If that state gets made permanent, that's the second death that scripture teaches. Okay, let me show you this in the Bible. Revelation 21, verse 8. Is this okay? Are you staying with me? All right. Revelation 21, 8. I am preaching to nerds, so you gave me permission. I'm preaching like it. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. 
This is talking about at the judgment seat, at the final accounting, those who are spiritually dead get rendered permanently dead. They go to the, into the, the, the afterlife eternal state that you'll talk about here in the coming weeks that we call hell. And spiritual death becomes permanent. That's the second death. The first death being one's body ceasing to function. The second death being one's spirit being permanently made separate from God, being permanently rendered spiritually impotent, if you will, spiritually insensitive, unable to respond to spiritual matters. That's the second death. The Bible teaches of an endless period of separation from the presence of God. (coughs) Excuse me, a finalization of the lost state of the person who is spiritually dead at the time of the first death. Did you get that? The second death is the finalization of the lost state of the person who is spiritually dead at the time of the first death, the body's death. So if our body dies, the first death, and we're spiritually dead, then ultimately that translates into the second death, which is a permanent separation from God. Okay, there it is, laid out in black and white. Second idea I want to highlight here as we're understanding the nature of death, believers in Christ will experience the first death. Every one of us will die one day unless the, the Lord Jesus returns before that time and sucks us up into the clouds to meet Jesus in the air, as First Thessalonians teaches. Barring that eventuality, or, a, I don't know, a flaming chariot descending to take you to heaven, um, which happens you know, once, or a, an ascension like Jesus, the, or a, a, a spontaneous beaming up like Enoch. I think those are the three we know of. And unless you get into the astronomically low likelihood of being part of that group, we're all going to die. <laughs> Sorry to be the bearer of bad news. But believers, the good news is believers in Christ will not experience the second death. We will not experience the second death. Revelation 20 verse 6 says, Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. And that's subject for another talk that comes in sequence after this one on death and dying uh, on the subject of the resurrection, which everybody, righteous and unrighteous, will undergo and will be resurrected for judgment. Then the believers, those who are found righteous because of Christ, will be a part of the second resurrection, if you will, and be made permanently resurrected and alive with Christ. I know that first and second is getting confusing, but hey, didn't write the Bible. The second death has no power over them. That's you. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, that's a subject that has worlds of understanding and, and institutions of literature written on it. The reigning with Christ for the thousand years. There's, there's a variety of thinking on that, but really three main camps on millennial um, theology. This would be a great subject for another middle Sunday school class. Maybe you've already studied it. Joe could teach this really well. Uh, he's smart in this kind of stuff. But basically, there's there. Are you guys familiar with the millennial reign idea? There's the, the thinking that says that that hasn't happened yet. There's going to be a literal millennial reign. We'll be resurrected. We'll be judged, and then we'll reign with Christ on the earth for a literal thousand years. Press the start button. Go. And we have political and territorial leadership. Then there's a, a basically a more liberal thinking that says it's a metaphorical thousand-year reign um, that we're in the middle of. Uh, well, I, I'm kind of combining two. There's one that says it's a less literal post-resurrection thousand-year reign. We're in the middle of it now. The church is growing. It's prospering. Things are going great. That's post-millennialism. And then amillennialism would be, um, and this is outside of your notes, so don't worry about getting this, but just for the sake of 
thoroughness, would say that there is no lin- literal millennial reign, that basically it's a, it's a metaphor like so much of Revelation, the book of Revelation, and it's to give us an idea of how Jesus desires to interact with the church. However that plays out, the bottom line is clear here in Revelation 20, the second death has no power over believers in Christ. Good news for us. Third idea, death is not part of the plan. This is huge to get. Death is not part of the plan for creation. God didn't create us in order to go through the agony of death. Death is part of the curse. Now, this subject, I told you I would forewarn you and I'm venturing into this territory. This subject is a matter of significant theological debate. There is not a majority consensus probably on this. Maybe there is, but not a strong majority consensus. One wouldn't say Orthodox Christian theology teaches blank about this subject. There are people who, who love God and have devoted their lives to learning and teaching the scriptures who think a variety of things in this. So I'm going to give you an idea that I believe and the scriptures for you to study for yourself. From the beginning, physical death was there, but it was there as a threat. In Genesis 3.3, God said, you must not eat from the tree. Sorry, this is, this is the, uh, God being quoted back to Adam and Eve. But God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. So death was there at the beginning. It didn't spell out exactly what that meant. When, when God said that to Adam and Eve. But death was there as a threat, not as an eventuality, not as an, uh, a necessary um, cause and effect relation. You will live and you will die. But death was there that if you disobey, then death will enter the picture. Does that make sense? Okay, so the curse that came after they did indeed disobey and were separated from God, it may have been spiritual death and physical death, but certainly, and this is a matter of less theological dispute, certainly the curse precipitated physical death. Physical death came because of the curse that was the result of man's disobedience. So God designed people to live in his image in a garden, and we don't know what man's lifespan or what the end or transitional function of that would be, but we do know that death was only brought into the picture once... um, once man disobeyed, as God had forewarned. Now, when I say spiritual death is less clear, spiritual death, the second death, the separating of man from God, whether that was, was the result of the curse. I said it backwards. Pause, unconfuse yourselves, back up. I, I'm looking at you and you're going, dude, what? Yeah, yeah, I said it backwards. I'm sorry. It, uh, let me restate that whole thing. Okay, it's clear that spiritual death was part of the threat of man's disobedience. So God says, let me just, just make it plain. God says, look, if you walk with me in the garden and do the things I've said and have great fellowship, cool. If you disobey and eat of this fruit, then death will happen. Now it's very clear and, and not very well, not very heavily disputed that that means there will be a spiritual separation, that you'll have a spiritual death, that you won't have the intimate fellowship, whether or not physical death, now this makes more sense, was the threat that would come with the curse if man disobeyed, or whether physical death was going to happen no matter what, that's the subject of theological debate. Some people believe that man weren't, wasn't created to ever die, that man was created in God's image. God doesn't die. Man was going to kind of live along, and then maybe, I don't know what would happen. But there's, there's one thinking that says physical death was, was introduced as the fruition, the fulfillment of that threat there. 
that God made. Does that make sense? Spiritual death, however, was clearly a result of the curse. God designed us to be at one with him. He designed us to be born spiritually alive, to connect with God, to walk with him, to be spiritual beings, to do his will, to walk and and talk and interact and all that. Then when the curse came, that's what led to a spiritual separation, to us being born into spiritual death, if you will. That's what we refer to as original sin. There, does that make more sense? I'm so sorry for confusing you. I confused myself, and then I thought, I don't know what I'm talking about at this point. So I had to back up. (laughs) Okay, move forward. New ground. 1 Corinthians 15. Huge passage on this topic. So uh, highlight this in your Bibles to study more. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 20. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. This suggests that death introduced through a man is not natural, but foreign and hostile. Certainly the spiritual death aspect of it. I'll leave you to think through and conclude whether physical death was indeed intended to be part of human existence or not. But at this point, the reason it doesn't matter that much is it's irrelevant. We're here now. The curse happened. The fall occurred. So... What originally was supposed to take place is a matter for academic discussion. What matters now is that death, separation from God, spiritual death, is not natural, but it's foreign and hostile. For as in Adam all die, verse 22, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn. Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death itself. Okay, what does this tell us? It tells us a number of things, but fundamentally Christ redeems us from the curse that sin put on us that was introduced when man chose to disobey in the beginning. Christ redeems us from that curse, and that curse includes death. So, we have redemption from spiritual death. We're not subject to it. That's the whole point here that I'm trying to communicate here at this juncture. And whether or not we're going to die physically, in all likelihood we are, Christ has redeemed us from the sting, if you will, from the evil intent that's to go along with physical death. You know, David says um, in Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Some people interpret that to mean that you don't actually die, you just go through the valley of the shadow of death. I think what David was saying was, even if I get really close to death, even if, I'm, if, if it feels like I'm about to die, I don't have to fear the evil of death. Now, I may have to, I may have to die. My body may have to stop breathing and my heart may have to stop beating. But I don't have to fear the evil intent, the sting that was supposed to go along with death. And you see that sting in people in the world all the time. And you see it, unfortunately, in people in the church. The sting that says, I'm afraid to die because I don't know what's going to happen. If I'm honest and truthful, I don't know where I'm going to go. Am I going to walk down a long tunnel with a light at the end? Am I, going to, am I going to see my grandmother? Am I going to get transported to another planet by an alien spaceship? What's going to happen? And because of all that misunderstanding, there's a fear that, that adds sting to death. And there's also the second part of the sting of death is this bitterness of mourning. Now, it's not to say that as Christians, we should give ourselves a mind job and pretend we're not sad. Must be happy. I am Christian bot. I am not sad. I mean, look, 
It's sad for us. God made us in his image, and God's emotional, right? I mean, God gets mad at the people of Israel. God gets sad. Jesus wept when Lazarus died, even though Jesus stalled in order to give Lazarus time to hurry up and die, right? How weird is that? Jesus, do you know the story I'm talking about? Jesus goes slow, and he, like, hangs out along the way, and the disciples are like, "Uh, Jesus, I know you're, you know, you're God and all, but don't you think we should pick up the pace? (laughs) And he's like, look, this is that the glory of God might be displayed. So Jesus intentionally stalls so Lazarus will get on with the dying, gets there, and still he weeps. Why? Because God is a God who's emotional. That's part of the faculties of God. We're made in his image, and for us to think we have to suppress our emotions, that's what it means not to grieve as the world does. That's foolishness. That's nonsense. But there's a bitterness. There's a, there's a hopelessness to grief that many endure who don't understand what happens and what God intended that we are exempt from. We don't have to be caught up in the throes of that bitter kind of grief. That's the sting of death that Jesus has absolved us from. Does that make sense? We'll endure physical death, but the curse, the curse that sin introduced is gone. Jesus delivers us from the evil of death. For the unbeliever, death is a curse. Death is a penalty separation from God, death that Jesus speaks of as what will happen should people not change their ways. And to the unbeliever, death is an enemy to be fought off, which is why the vigor with which people who don't know the hope of Jesus fend off death. That's why they're so um, frenetic about fitness, health, doing whatever I can to live a little longer. Is it good to take care of our bodies? Of course. Is it good to eat right and exercise and not do needlessly dangerous things in order to uh, not risk killing ourselves sooner than we need to and ending our time on earth? Of course. God put us here for a reason. But that fear of death, that, that paranoia uh, that drives us to do whatever we can to look and act and feel and be younger lest we die, that highlights the fact that to an unbeliever in Christ, death is an enemy. What exactly does that punishment look like to the unbeliever? Is it extinction? The Bible doesn't teach that, though it's, in fact, it feels more humane to a secular society that if there be a God who punishes people for wrongdoing in the afterlife, that that would simply be annihilation, ceasing to be. And there's a a, 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 a sort of deviant theological stream, annihilationism. I don't think it's heretical. It doesn't jeopardize one's salvation hope. But to think that death means for the unbeliever simply that you just kind of vaporize and stop being doesn't line up with anything that the Bible or that Jesus taught. In fact, all human beings have a beginning. We all come into existence at some point, but all human beings have no end. What's that in mathematical terms? I think it's called a ray, right? Uh, there's one point and another point connecting a line. Then there is a segment, sorry. Then there's a line which has no beginning or end. And then there's a ray which starts at a point and goes on in perpetuity. Is that correct? Any math majors? Okay, we're a ray. Every human being is a ray. So much so that C.S. Lewis put it this way in an essay he wrote called The Weight of Glory. Anyone read that? <laughs> Excuse me. In The Weight of Glory, he says, you've never met a mere mortal. The people you, to summarize and paraphrase, the people that you 
pat, cross paths with, sit next to at red lights, wait behind in line at Walmart from day to day. The people you do life alongside, the very greatest to the very least, are immortals. The mere glimpse of whom in their eternal glory would cause you to be very tempted to bow down and worship them or in their eternal horror would cause you to run away like you were looking at a, at a horror flick. Mere immortals are who we live around and work with and do life with. Like it or not, comfortable or uncomfortable, there's not much of any hope if you read the scripture and believe what it teaches that we simply become extinct and cease to be. Rather, death is in its penalty form, the second death, the permanent separation from God, to be cut off from any opportunity for redemption. That's why, the, why I say the making permanent of that spiritual deadening, the opportunity for one's spirit to respond to spiritual reality and turn, to repent, to get redeemed, that stops at death. And that's the real horror of it. Jesus delivers us from the evil of that death. For believers in Christ, physical death has a different character. Because the curse is gone, because the second death doesn't linger over us, some things look different. Isaiah 25, verse 8, he will swallow up death forever. And this is Isaiah prophesying about the New Testament era, once God has sent Jesus to bring redemption and reconciliation. He'll swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of the people of, of his people from all the earth, the Lord has spoken. And in 1 Corinthians 15, I told you this is the, the ultra-pivotal passage on this topic in the New Testament, at least in Paul's writings. Verse 54, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. When the, parable, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then that saying will become true. When is the perishable clothed with the imperishable? When is the mortal clothed with immortality? <laughs> when is the mortal clothed with immortality? If you know when the mortal is clothed with immorality, I don't want to hear about it, but Joe does right afterward up here, preferably with weeping and travail. <laughs> when does that happen? That happens not at some point in history, but at 10,000 points in history when every person says, Jesus, I can't do this on my own. I'm dead. Make me alive. And Jesus comes and we're born again and new life comes into the old being, then the mortal puts on immortality. The perishable is clothed with the imperishable. And then it, what is said is true here, as Paul quotes it, that death loses its sting. That we are relieved, exempted, given the bypass code for the second death. In Galatians 3, Paul says this in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus took that on, and that's atonement theology 101. That's what Jesus did on the cross and the, me the mechanism by which we get access to this 
immortality. Okay, and in Revelation 21, and this is going to get fun. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things has passed away. That scripture to me is one that gives among the greatest hope of any in the New Testament. I've done um, a a few funerals of late, and one was particularly, um, well, a a couple were particularly traumatic. I I know a number of us attended the Works Girls funeral, and that was just gut-wrenching, going through that and, and being there with their family as, well, they lost one daughter immediately and then lost the second that night in the hospital. And to see in sort of the worst case scenario, the extreme reductio ad Hitler expression of Christian death, to see people mourn, grieve, and travail, but not without hope, not as the world does, to see people embrace the truth of the word in a way that can't be contrived. When you're that emotionally raw, you can't make that up. You can't put on an air of being joyful. That's the power of God in the heart of a believer. And at that memorial service, we read these, verse, these words from Revelation 21, that in heaven, in God's eternal dwelling and our eternal home, there is no more death. There is no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain. That's what we're made for. That's who we are. So we have nothing to fear in death. While non-Christians look on death as an enemy and see nothing positive, so they recoil in fear at it, we see death as a reality, but we see it as a conquered foe. So we have nothing to fear. Death, in fact, the Bible teaches, is desirable in the eternal perspective as it brings us into the presence of God. And we all know the passage in Philippians 1, verse 20, where Paul says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. He's talking about how he's facing the reality of of threats on his life. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor labor for me. What shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire, he says, to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Death is not only not to be feared, It's not only been neutralized of the sting, but death is to be desired insofar as it brings us closer to Christ. To die is gain. The last idea here in this outline, death is not an end, but simply a transition to a different mode of existence. There is a resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous, at which time all will face judgment. And then there is a permanent resurrection, which those who are found righteous because of Christ will receive which will look like new bodies. I'm not exactly sure what those new bodies will be like. A lot of people uh, postulate that they'll be like Jesus after he died and came back where he could kind of walk through walls, yet they could touch him. So he could kind of go from being kind of like the, but not evil, kind of like the two weird albino twins in, in, the, in the Matrix, you know? They're solid and solidly there, but then they can sort of go worm and sort of get invisible minus the weird Skeletor looking thing and then go through the car and then back to being fleshy. That may be how it is. That seems to be how Jesus is. Again, not, not evil like the freaky albino Matrix twins. But, but do you know what I'm talking about? Okay. 
Yeah. So anyway, you'll get resurrected like that at some point. That's another talk, another topic, lots of good stuff to discuss there. But what's fascinating to conclude with, and then we'll do some Q&A and have some discussion. Death isn't an end, but simply a transition to a different mode of existence. What the ultimate mode of existence looks like, we have a lot of clarity on. Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, mansions. Heaven's going to be huge and great and awesome and gold. And some of these may be metaphors. Others may be literal. Maybe there really are gates made of pearls. Who knows? We're going to get resurrected bodies. Don't know a lot about them, but we'll have sort of the matrixy powers to go through things and yet still be there. It'll be awesome. But what happens in the meantime? What do we do in the transitional time while we're waiting for that resurrection body? The intermediate state is one of the most fascinating discussions in all, to me anyway, in all of theology. The quote-unquote so-called intermediate state. For better or for worse, we do go somewhere. We do become something. Some people believe... Well, people believe all kinds of things. I'll tell you the prevailing thoughts on this. Do you know what I mean, the intermediate state? Ever wondered what happens to us right after we die? I mean, there's, you've got verses like Jesus to the thief on the cross. Remember what he said? The guy said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, not just when I come into my kingdom. Uh, today, you'll be with me in purgatory. No, in paradise. Now, some people have changed the meaning of that or have, have given it a, a particular meaning, paradise, to mean something um, that they want it to mean, but I mean, he says today you'll be with me in paradise. Okay, so that doesn't, that doesn't suggest that either the person or Jesus went to some Hades hell holding tank. And I mean, there's a whole sub-discussion within this intermediate discussion of what was Jesus's intermediate state. Where was Jesus on Saturday? Anyone know? Well, if you grew up like I did in the Presbyterian church, you probably have said somewhere between four and 5,000 times that he descended to hell in the Apostles' Creed. Did anyone grow up saying the Apostles' Creed every Sunday in church? Yeah, me too. And so I, I, I just assumed the Apostles' Creed was the Bible. So the Apostles' Creed is the Bible minus one phrase. Anyone know which phrase that is? He didn't ascend into hell. Now, maybe he did, in fact, ascend to hell. The fact is, though, the Bible doesn't clearly teach that. A se- separate subset and a fascinating discussion, which I'll leave you to ponder. Where was Jesus on Saturday? Now, some of you didn't grow up in the Presbyterian church, just a little more on this. Some of you didn't grow up in the Presbyterian church like me. You grew up like in the Pentecostal church where you were taught that Jesus went to hell, but he didn't go to hell to get punished. He went to hell to, to preach to the captives and to do what? Anyone else? To, 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 there was something he was supposed to go get, according to my Pentecostal. The keys! The Pentecostal crowd always tells me, and I don't get this because I didn't grow up getting this in Sunday school, but he goes to take the keys of sin and death, right? Now, where on earth you get that, I don't know, except in Pentecostal Sunday school class. But, but I, one time I was having a discussion, a debate with a, a friend on this subject, and, and he was like, Gee, I know Jesus went to hell. And I'm like, how do you know he went to hell? He's like, well, he went to get the keys. I'm like, do you, do you think there's really a keychain? Kind of like the Duke, the Duke boys when they're in prison and the, there's a big ring hanging on, the, on Roscoe's wall in the jail. And it's like the keychain with a big key and it says like, the tag says like, hell, death, and the grave on it. And Jesus and all the prisoners are like tying the sheets together and trying to get the keys. And Jesus goes and he's like, excuse me, devil, but I need to take these keys. And he brings the key ring back. Do you think perhaps it's the, 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 the proverbial keys? You know, like the metaphoric keys? I don't know. Maybe he had to go take the keys. Maybe he had to preach to the captives. But what's he going to preach to them? We know there's no second chance once you're in hell. So what's he going to preach? Nanny, nanny, boo-boo? Like, <laughs> hate it for you guys? I mean, that's not really Christ-like. So I, I just, I don't so much object to the fact that Jesus went to hell on face value. as I can't see what possibly he would have done there. 
Unless really he did have to wrestle the keys on the devil's hands. Give me those keys. <laughs> like, remember, in, remember in The Simpsons? Give me that bear. Huh. Ha. Huh. Bested by an infant. What could be more humiliating? <laughs> and what, what's happened with the keys? Okay, anyway, keys aside. <laughs> if any of you gets the key thing, tell me afterward. Because I've been doing this for 12 years and I don't get it. Okay, the intermediate state. More that we know more about what we what happens to us than we know about what happened to Jesus in the intermediate state. Liberal view. Early 20th century was the the seedbed of liberal theology, uh, the liberal theology movement, and they <coughs> there was a rejection of the resurrection as uh, as a falsehood and a metaphor. They considered it preposterous and scientifically implausible. They thought it was mytho- uh, uh, basically mythology, that it was a good story to inspire people to righteous living, that the spirit lives on, and that there is an immortality of the soul. Of the soul. So basically, the liberal view is that um, there's no actual resurrection of a body, that, um, that really what happens is we die in our spirit, sort of kind of like Mufasa. We go into the stars and we're like, Simba, you know, go back and find your destiny. Whatever. That's a funnier joke with people my age who have little kids who watch Disney movies. Apparently, that's not you. Okay. <laughs> you guys don't have little kids yet. I should not. Anyway, Mufasa goes to the stars, and he's Simba's dad in The Lion King. <laughs> You'll laugh in 10 years, I promise you. Like the 15, 15th or 16th time you watch The Lion King. Okay, then there's, um, there's the neo-orthodoxy position. We'll wrap this up. Neo-orthodoxy maintains that existence means bodily existence. It's rooted in a monistic theological camp, which is a discussion for another time also. And they believe in an immediate bodily resurrection. So basically, these are the two polar extremes. The liberal view says, look, there's no real resurrection. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We know. You just kind of, you become the trees. You become the stars. Your spirit sort of lives on and, you know, goes and whispers things to your kids in the night or speaks to Dionne Warwick on behalf of other people, you know, or whatever. Like, yeah. You know, you call the psychic hotline and someone up there talking to you through Dion. Why'd, why'd they choose Dion? I, I don't know. I mean, why not some of the other soul train remnants? Dion Warwick used to be in this century. Okay, so then neo-orthodoxy maintains on the other extreme that you die, boom, your body comes back to life, and you're off to the races. That's the other extreme. There's the soul sleep theory. Uh, is this interesting to you, the intermediate state? Okay, the soul sleep, and who knows? These could be right. The soul sleep theory, or what's often referred to um, colloquially as the state of the dead, um, is one of, the, one of the theological sort of hills to die on for the Seventh-day Adventist denomination. Some people believe the Seventh-day Adventist denomination to be a cult. Other people believe it to be a, a denomination that has some, some really... Um, particular views. I, I don't know about all that. I just know that they, Jehovah's Witnesses, who definitely are, are not Orthodox Christian, and some evangelical Christians believe in a state of soul sleep where essentially um, they take passages that I would interpret to be clearly metaphoric or poetic language, like David fell asleep, rested with his fathers. Uh, G- Lazarus, Jesus said, Lazarus isn't dead, he's fallen asleep where they say the person just narrowly skirted death and their spirit is just sort of lying dormant, sleeping. And so when you say, well, what about to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord? They'd say, have you ever gone to sleep uh, and, and noticed that you were asleep? 
No. You go to sleep and then you wake up and time seems to pass instantaneously. So they would say from the user end point of view, it would be as though that were true. I don't know about that either, but that's one theory. Then there's the Sheol slash Hades theory. Sheol Hades is based on the fact that the New Testament distinguishes between Gehenna in, in terms of specific words translated hell. Gehenna is the place of torment, the place of permanent punishment, the lake of fire, the really, really bad place. It's taken... Um, one of you guys correct me if I'm wrong because I, I don't have this in my notes, but I'm pretty sure Gehenna was the name of a, um, uh, of a particularly notorious trash dump in, is that right? Okay, so, so you guys are on your theological game where trash was burned and things like that. And so it was known to be an awful place and they used that metaphor to describe the permanent place of punishment, of torture. The New Testament distinguishes between Gehenna and Hades, which might be called like the holding tank for the righteous departed. Um, some, I think the keys of sin and death crowd, call that Abraham's bosom. Don't quite get that either, but if you're used to Abraham's bosom language, um, I, I mean, I think I'd just as soon be asleep as be in Abraham's bosom for a thousand years, but who knows. Has anyone heard of Abraham's bosom as that? Okay, good. So I'm not crazy. All right, that's the holding tank, if you will, for the righteous departed, presuming that the redeemed, as well as, uh, the redeemed as well as the unredeemed would go to Hades, sort of the, the grand holding tank, not so much a purgatory where you can get prayed out or you can affect your state. They're just kind of there. It's kind of like the county jail. You hang out there until you get arraigned, and then you get sent to one place or another. You either get set free or you get sent to the state pen, right? Um, Hades is like that. I have trouble... Believing, though, that that's what Jesus was talking about when he said to the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. And he's like, oh, great. This is paradise. This looks like the county jail to me. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's that. Uh, then there's the purgatory theory. We all understand that, I think. Primarily held by Roman Catholic believers. Rests on the tradition um, that comes mainly from a couple of apocryphal scriptures. You know, the books that are in the Catholic Bible that aren't in the Christian Bible. Um, Okay, basically the, the purgatory theology holds to the fact that it doesn't feel right. It doesn't seem right that we should be allowed to go freely into heaven without suffering you know, a bit for our sins, even though we were redeemed by Christ. It just seems, it's unseemly. Um, the Bible tells us a few things about the intermediate state. There is undeniably personal conscious existence between death and resurrection in Luke 16. I'll leave you to read it. The transition of the body out of the body and into eternity is immediate. Acts 7, the story of Stephen getting stoned, teaches that. Also, Luke 23, when Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So it goes from my spirit resting in my temporal earthly body to my spirit being in your hands. Jesus stated, and then 2 Corinthians 5 speaks to this as well, at home in the body, away from the Lord. The soul of the unrighteous descend to Hades to await final judgment. We know that to be true, whether or not the righteous go to Hades to wait for final judgment. Or maybe the righteous have like the new tower in the Hades hotel and the unrighteous go to the old booty, you know, 70s shag carpet tower in the Hades hotel. I don't know. But that, there's, there's that thinking. Does that make sense? Like everyone goes to Hades, but maybe there's like a, a Hades, like a good version of Hades and a bad version of Hades. And if you look down and you've got like orange shag carpet with little scallop designs in it, that bodes poorly for your future. <laughs> so if you, if you look up and you see like paneling on the walls, 
be afraid. <laughs> and then Matthew 16, Jesus says, I tell you, you're Peter. Um, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Aha, the keys. <laughs> well, it doesn't say that Peter gave them to the devil. Unless, I mean, why would, yeah. Uh, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth, there's more of that. Uh, we need to wrap up. The souls of the righteous dead are received into paradise to await judgment. Whatever you can, can consider paradise to be, I believe paradise uh, is, as Jesus described it in Matthew It's lost the verse. Oh, sorry, Luke 23. He said to the thief, you'll be with me today in paradise. Then in, in Luke 16, that's the Lazarus and the rich man story. Great story to teach on this topic. Uh, you can read that on your own as well. But from those scriptures, you can conclude enough to know that there is a basically a pre-hell and a pre-heaven. From all these theologies, know that we know this, that those who die apart from Christ go to essentially a pre-hell called Hades. It's not as bad as the ultimate hell called Gehenna, where they're going to be punished eternally, separated from God. But it's kind of the holding hell. It's the county jail of hell until all can be resurrected and stand trial, until the arraignment, basically. And then the righteous departed, those who are righteous in Christ and those who died before Christ and were righteous um, because God credited their faith as righteousness, Abraham, as as an example. Um, those went to a, 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 a pre-heaven, if you will, a holding tank for heaven. Uh, Jesus refers to it as paradise. We know there are some distinguishing features of the ultimate heaven, such as we'll have resurrected bodies that seem not to come into being until after the judgment and the final resurrection. Does that make sense? Okay, so uh, a thousand shades of gray, a lot of theories on that. Tried to give you what the Bible says, let you form your own conclusions. But understanding the mechanics of what happens when we die is important for us to understand our own lives and to grieve, but not as those without hope when we lose loved ones. It's also important for us as evangelists, as lights in the darkness to help people understand. Because look, I love funerals. Even though I don't like being sad, I love that little window of opportunity to to speak eternity to people when they're thinking eternal language. Many people only think about the big picture, where they are in time and space when they're at a funeral or maybe at a wedding. And so to be able to help people, comfort them when they're grieving and not say well-meaning but nonsense things like, God needed a rose, so he picked your son. Well, why'd he pick my son? I mean, that that sounds nice for a greeting card, but we have more substantial hope than that. And so to be able to impart that to people is to point people to Christ, and it's good. Okay, uh, I did not leave you as much time for discussion as I had wanted to. It was just so much there, so I'm sorry. I am a preacher, and I sometimes have preacher disease. Right now, I'm kind of a pre- pent-up preacher because I don't preach a lot these days. So I was taking it all out on you. Uh, maybe one or two questions, thoughts, ideas, pushback. Anyone want to argue for the keys? Yeah, let's go here and then here. That is a good question. And it is the same word. There is, there is a, I don't know the word off the top of my head. There is another word that's used on occasion. Um, you know what? Let me get you a more intelligent answer because I do have that in an outline. It's just not in this outline and I don't remember enough to, to not confuse you. If, if we can exchange emails after it, I'll get you the right answer. But yes, for the most part, it is the same word that's used um, the majority of the time. Let's go here and then up there. 
Yes. Um, the You're talking about the fact that um, there isn't annihilation, that we don't cease to exist. Well, typically, nobody contests that with regard to heaven. Everyone believes that we live eternally in heaven, but what's un palatable to think about is living eternally in punishment. Jesus talks about the, um, the place of uh, the destination of the unrighteous where the fire never goes out and where um, the worm is never satisfied, essentially. And there are four or five different, um, different New Testament references, primarily that Jesus makes, to an eternal punishment. Uh, again, I have, I have that list in, a, in the outline that in this series that I taught, kind of like your series, comes right after this one on judgment. And, uh, and I'd love to just forge you that if you'd like. Uh, I've got a whole bunch of them. Um, I don't have them all, the references on the top of my head, but I, I can email those to you as well and you can chew on them. There is a, uh, I want to stress, there is a case. There isn't uh, an unorthodoxy to the annihilationist view. I mean, if you can't bear being a Christian and thinking about people being separated eternally from God, um, you, there is a minority theolo- theology camp that believes annihilationism, believes that people just become extinct after a certain period of time. Um, and you might, you might find a home there. It's, there's scant biblical data to support that compared to data, which is interpretive, mind you, because Jesus might say the fire never goes out, but that doesn't explicitly say the people's candle never goes out. But why would the fire keep burning if the people are dead? You know, I mean, that's kind of the thinking. Um, so the, you can dig in on that. Um, most, most good theology, all good theology texts address this rather, rather at length. Um, and there was one other thing I was going to say about, about that, about annihilation as well. Oh, I, and this is, uh, I, uh, you'll get into this when you guys talk about hell. But I believe, and, and there is a, a good set of biblical support for the belief that there are levels of hell. You know, basically Dante's thesis, if you've read the Inferno. I I don't know that people get dipped into boiling oil upside down or right side up, depending on how bad they were. I don't know if it's all that, but there is is a biblical teaching for degrees of punishment based on both depth of depravity and amount of knowledge, how much knowledge they they were spurning and kind of spitting in the face of. Does that make sense? Which can also help you to make sense of those feelings of this is unjust because those are legitimate feelings and good to work through. Let's see, we were... Okay, let's go up here and then around the back. Oh, come on, bring the keys. Let's read them real quick. Can you read those out and somebody get... <laughs> I know it's off the subject, but it's Mill Sunday School. And, uh, and so... We have to stop. Oh, this is so fun. I want to do this every week. All right. Do you read them next week? Maybe, maybe you can bring back your, uh, your, um, those four re- references and maybe Joe will give you two minutes at the beginning to read them and debate the keys. Cause I think that'd be fascinating. Maybe I'll pop over here and listen. And, and I'd love to be wrong on the keys. Cause I mean, how, what could be cooler than Jesus going to hell to like snatch the keys? Okay. We're, we're done. Let's go with this last question right here. And then, then we'll end. Sorry to take your time, you guys. Well, there's a couple of different ways to look at that. Um, the Bible says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And a lot of people look at Genesis 1-1 as sort of a, 
a topic sentence for the, for the thesis that's going to be developed. And so that's basically saying, look, creation happened. God created, and a lot, of, a lot of times in the poetic passages in the Old Testament, heavens will refer to the celestial um, beings, you know, the sun, the stars, the moons, the planets, things like that, and the earth, meaning our particular um, ball of rock and earth that we live on. It may mean that God also created heaven, the dwelling of God, and earth, but Jesus told his disciples, look, I'm leaving now to go start preparing a place for you. And so that suggests that a heaven to which we retreat from this earth was, uh, came about as a result of the fall. Good question, worth digging in and thinking more, but I want to end because you guys have to get on to church. And actually, I have to get on to church. I have this crazy job that makes me work on Sundays. So I better get, <laughs> better get back to it. Thank you so much. It was a joy being with you. I really enjoyed this.